Welcome to Is It Fast, where myself and other Stu have got the absolute honour of talking to one of the greatest minds in motorsport. Today we are talking to Derek Walker. Derek has been an absolute master across Formula One, the IndyCar Championship. He's dealt with Porsches, Brabham. He's worked with two of the greats of the motorsport world, Bernie Eccleston and Roger Penske. And today he is sharing a little bit about what he's gotten up to over the years with myself and Stu. So sit back, buckle up and get ready for one of the best interviews that Is It Fast has ever had. I knew exactly what I wanted. It was just trying to figure out how to get there. And, you know, you don't have those answers when you're back then and you're trying to break into, you know, coming from Scotland and uh, extensively a, a bus mechanic background. It's uh, not exactly an endorsement to uh, any major motor racing series <laughs> that um, I worked on some of the best SMT buses. So I'm really here and I'm ready to work on your race car. Uh, that um, that didn't work. I did never tried it actually, but that didn't work, but um, actually, the uh, how I got there, the um, apprenticeship that I went through at the SMT did, in fact, help me a great deal in many ways. And, uh, you know, it was a five-year apprenticeship now. Now, of course, you can do it in six months and you're, you're up and ready. But back then, you had to do five years and you had to do everything. So you were an apprentice and you went around all the various departments with you know hundreds of these buses and company cars so you got a bit of everything building the body you know rebuilding the gearboxes the automatics and all that stuff electrics uh, dynos you know you, you when you think back to it um, it'd be you'd be hard pressed to go somewhere and be able to go around for five years and experience that sort of skill sets so anyway um but during that time when I was at the SMT, I met a young designer who was friends of one of the um, managers, uh, general managers. And he, he was from Switzerland and he w wanted to get into motor racing big time. And he was in the SMT because that was his foot in the door to get into the UK and work um, at the SMT as a designer doing various, you know, modifications to these buses. And um, he was also learning English, and that was part of his, uh, you know, reason for being there. Anyway, him and a few other um, guys I worked with, uh, we'd go to races, and so we got to know each other. And then he left SMT and eventually ended up at Lotus and McLaren, did the four-wheel drive cars, Formula One cars. And so mm. I always kept the relationship, um, never thinking that one day that might help me get in. But when I went down to London and got a job in a in a, uh, a company that was racing cars and servicing other people's cars, um, I was really trying to get into racing. And I happened to catch up with him and meet with him for dinner one night. And... Um, he said he would try and make some calls for me. So long story short, he he got me the introduction uh, and the rest was up to me. It was no guarantee. I had to go there and 
Yeah. As I look back, say <laughs> I had to fake it, but <laughs> somehow I got that foot in the door. Um, but I, before that, I was actually got I was in Trojan, who built all the Can-Am cars and the A cars. Yeah. So I got a bit of real experience about making race cars before I ended up at Brabham. So that was very helpful. But still, you know, when I think back, you. you you don't know what you don't know, but if you're <laughs> if you're desperate enough and you take up the challenge and keep pushing, um, and, you know sometimes good things happen. And I, I would say to a lot of people who are maybe in my position back then, is I if I can do it, anybody can do it. You know, it's it wasn't I didn't have a manual or you know I wasn't uh, deeply entrenched in motor racing prior to but i had that passion for doing it it's all i ever wanted to do since i was pretty well able to recognize a motor car that's absolutely fantastic um certainly having been on an smt or a first bus as they're called now it baffles me that a mechanic from them was actually a mechanic for an f1 team as well especially chief mechanic as well Uh, maybe if they didn't let you go you could actually get somewhere in time um, but that'd be absolutely fantastic. Well, if I'd stayed, I'd probably be driving them by now. But uh, I, I was in Edinburgh a few years ago, and I was amazed um, at the speed they go at. Uh, I'm quite, you know, over here, buses are pretty lame duck uh, vehicle. But um, yeah, going from downtown Edinburgh up to Gilmerton, where I used to live. That was a pretty exciting ride. Um, so <laughs> I'd like to yeah, think, they, yeah. they tend not to slow down because of the locals, but yeah. yeah. God forbid if you slow down, you have to pick up passengers. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> so well, anyway. It hasn't changed much. <laughs> no, even few, no, no. Even a few years since you went, when you went back. But so you, you say that the, the passion for, for motorsport and working on, on motorsport vehicles was there from the second you could kind of recognize what one was. What do you remember what that first moment might have been when you thought this is, this is for me? I do actually. Um, funny enough. Um, I, my family, first of all, my family after the war, when things were really pretty tough, uh, in Scotland, um, uh, um, my father and a neighbor and his family and our family decided they'd take the challenge to emigrate to Australia. So we emigrated from Australia and I was obviously very young then. And um, my family ended up in a small town outside Perth, about 60 miles outside Perth. And if you can imagine back then, it it was effectively the boondocks. I mean, it was... Mm out there we were on the edge of this very small cattle town and there wasn't a heck of a lot going on and we lived there for i don't know several years and uh one day this truck came by and dropped a lot of straw bales at the end of the street and apart from finding them great fun to play on i couldn't figure out why somebody i thought must have fell off the truck or something but anyway, I enjoyed jumping up and down on these straw bales. And then the next morning, and it's a true story. I must have told it about six million times, but I'm going to say it again because you asked. And I, could, <laughs> I like to repeat it because then I know I can still remember. 
But anyway, uh, so the next morning I was I was just awakening in bed and I heard this noise and I thought, what the hell is that? So I was up and out and I ran down the end of the street and sure enough, the straw bales were the barrier uh, to stop the cars from taking the wrong turn and coming up our street. So these cars, it, it was effectively, this is back in the, I don't know, 50s, it was effectively a, a, a street race. And these cars hurtled by, and I sat on this straw bale the whole day watching those damn things. And that was it. From then on, uh, there was no question about what I really wanted to do in life. I was just um, fascinated by the noise. And then, you know, times were tough, so we'd my father would go up into the bush and work on rich farmers' houses, building houses. So my mother and I, my brother, we were left pretty well alone. And um, they'd, we'd take in lodgers. So there'd be a lodger come in and rent one of the rooms and, you know, help pay the bills. And one of them happened to be pretty handy. I don't know what he did, but he always had these big trucks, ex-military trucks that he'd park in our yard. And he'd be working on them. And of course, I'd be there gobsmacked looking at them. And, and it just, everything about what I was about was all about cars. So it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then when, I, when my mother finally got homesick, brought us back to Edinburgh, much to everybody's, you know, God, no, we're not going back. But we <laughs> did. So we arrived back in Scotland completely penniless and ended up in Gilmerton. And uh, my uncle, happened to be a mechanic at the SMT. So he managed to put my name on the list uh, to try and get an apprenticeship. So, you know, a few months later, when I left school, um, I uh, was allowed to start in the as an office boy in the SMT. So I was in the offices running around, pretending to know what I was doing. <laughs> and then when I was at the ripe old age of 16, um, which today I think a lot of guys are probably still wearing nappies. But back then, <laughs> um, you know, you, you were out in the street, buddy. You better mm -hmm. have a job. And uh, the school just couldn't seem to, um, you know, wait to get rid of you because they had a backup of all these people. And, of course, when I came back from Australia, I spoke like an Australian. I was immediately a target. And... Uh, I, I, the education system was completely different. So I was really screwed up for a while. But the one thing that kept me motivated was this uh, getting involved in cars. And so my uncle put me on the list, office boy. And then at 16, I went downstairs and I was one of about 25 apprentices. So I'll give you an idea how big the place was. And that was in New Street. And then they moved to Marine. So it, it was... You know, more luck than judgment, I think. But I, I, know, I always say to a lot of people, uh, as early as you can think about what you really want to do, it's really important because you've got to start focusing on that objective. And it may take its twists and turns and, you know, it's not a given, but you never know what's out there. But if you're not standing in line or chasing the car down the road, you're probably never going to catch it. So anyway.
that ends the speech for today. <laughs> no, that very is... wise words indeed. Um, just going back to your, your time in Australia, health and safety be darned that um, a, a young boy was allowed <laughs> to sit on a bale of hay and watch cars just race by, probably barely giving you meters worth of safety space. But um, no, that, that's how it was done back in the day. So so that's brilliant. Yeah, well... Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, given that was in the 50s, uh, the idea of safety didn't come to motor racing till probably around the late 60s, 70s. That's when people started to realize that um, more needs to be done. But actual meaningful changes in safety didn't come until late 80s, 90s, really. Um, and, you know, when we talk about safety as drivers and there's also spectators that need to be uh, looked at. And that's one of the, the challenges for, um, say, IndyCar racing, because it races on ovals and, and very high speed. So, and they could go faster than they do, but regulations keep them sort of contained somewhat. But the containment when you've got as in Indianapolis's uh, situation, and it will be this year, when you've got 300,000 people within spitting distance of something doing 235 miles an hour, when that little beauty doesn't go where it's supposed to go, um, you know, containing those bits, he might have a high fence, but containing the car and the driver uh, survival uh, is a uh, is a big part of where uh, the challenge is when you look at uh, speed and safety and and entertainment. You know, part of the thrill is you get really close. Back mm. in the seventies, you know, people would would you know crash and be named maimed for life or killed, um, and it was just just an accepted part of the danger of the business. Of course, you know, after a while, uh, that wasn't good enough and things changed, thank goodness. And you, you mentioned the 70s and obviously when you were at Brabham, if, if I got my timelines right and I've read the, the research notes, you crossed, you would have crossed paths with a certain Bernie Eccleston at a certain moment in time, I imagine, as well. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but it's interesting. And we, we won't ask too much because of fear of potentially getting sued, which we flirt with on Is It Fast all the time anyway. But um, <laughs> and we're running out of legal pot money, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, but um, but it's interesting how, you you know, seeing someone like that operate in the roles that he was in, obviously, mm. as time went on and you you moved away from potentially the coalface to, to where you, you ended up in your career, which we'll, we'll touch on later. But um, what was that time like uh, at Brabham in the, the kind of early mid 70s and then what what kind of pushed you to jumping across the pond into what is a very different culture really in terms of motorsport and the sure. thing you know the size the speed everything just kind of goes up a notch doesn't it so what was that yeah. transition like well um when I was at Brabham I got when I first went to Brabham's uh, the owner of it was Ron Taranak you know Jack mm. Left the year before, and Ron was in charge, and uh, you know they had made a, a what we called the lobster claw, the Formula One car that uh, was quite unusual and didn't work too well. And uh, they had Graham Hill, 
and uh, forget who else was. Oh, Tim Schenken back then. And uh, then um, towards the end of, I forget which year it was, um, we were at Brabham's, uh, no, at Brands Hatch, sorry, at the championship race or whatever it was at Brands Hatch. It was a non-points race, hmm. Formula One race. And we were there and there was another guy, Alan Turner, who was another mechanic with the team. He, him and I were standing on the pit wall and this little guy was hanging on the pit wall with us looking at the cars go by. He didn't say anything. He was just standing there. And uh, Alan, being from, I think he was from Yorkshire, fairly outspoken, uh, he said, uh, and I won't imitate his accent, but he said in a very broad accent, you know, uh, what's, uh, what are you doing here? You know, what's your connection? Do you know anybody at Brabham or something? And he, in a very deliberate Bernie fashion, he just looked at him and it's almost like he was going to tell Alan to you know, go, go take a hike. But he just looked at him. Then he decided to answer him. Uh, and he said, yeah, I've just bought the team. And because his <laughs> car's going by and Alan, and Alan goes, oh, okay, okay. And then he's looking at me and I'm looking at him. Did we hear him right? <laughs> Couldn't be. Maybe he's an investor or something. Who knows? So anyway, the next day uh, back to work after the race, um, we were all summoned into the main workshop where they assembled all the cars. And uh, a guy came in with uh, Ron Taranak and Ron introduced him. Uh, there was two guys. There was one Colin Seeley and the other one was Bernie Eccleston. And so Colin, <laughs> it sounds comical now, but it was just happened and nobody laughed. It was just what happened. Uh, Colin pulled over a wooden box and Bernie stood on it. So <laughs> uh, as you can imagine, the great Brabham enterprise, which was typical of most of the second tier Formula One teams at that time. Uh, Brabham used to be a top tier, but it had fallen from grace, run out of money or had, didn't have enough money. And it had aging ownership who was trying to get out. So anyway, Bernie stood on the box and said, my name's Bernie Eccleston, I've owned Brabham, we're gonna go racing and da 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 da. And he rabbited on for a little while and then stood down and walked away. <laughs> and and, and the, the, the mass of Brabham's was probably if it was 20 people, it was no more, which includes, you know, the, uh, the office lady, you know, draftsman, and, you know, guy cleaned, cleaned the floor, the assembly guys who put all the Atlantic, um, the I call them Atlantic cars together, all the racing cars that Ron used to sell. Um, and, you know, he just disappeared. And we as a group just stood there like, wow. Okay, that's a change. And uh, from that point on, it was a change. And I always like to say I had the pleasure of working for two of the smartest guys in motor racing. That was Bernie Eccleston and Roger Penske. Um, both of those guys had very similar traits 
but um, were quite different on how they went about them and what they ultimately did in motor racing that made them so good, so good for motor racing. Bernie was just, you know, he was a detail guy. Um, uh, he brought in different drivers, you know, he was, he, he knew what he needed to do and uh, he went and did it. So Brabham's with uh, the new designer, Gordon Murray, who was really just uh, a beatnik, as we used to call them back then. <laughs> well, he went off to achieve nothing anyway, didn't he? he, he yeah, he was just <laughs> shuffling around from the office, didn't speak to anybody, drove to work in this mini moat kind of device that was in the it leaked like a sieve. And uh, he, um, you know, everybody liked him a lot because when he came out with the drawing and you made it, it actually worked. Whereas some of the stuff that was being put out prior to that, I mean, we used to have a wall in the race shop where every time something like a radius rod bracket, which were always cracking, every time one cracked, we'd drill it off and hang it on the wall with a piece of welding wire. And we had this wall full of all these bits because the designers didn't design them properly and they were always breaking. And old Bernie walked in one day, what the, what the hell's all that? Don't get that shit off the wall. <laughs> so we had to, but he got the point, he got the point. And so in the end, we and the team were pushing because we got quite friendly with Bernie in that respect. Mm. We, we were pushing him to give Gordon Murray the chance. And of course, then he went on and did the Toblerone car yeah. as we called it and um you know the rest is history yeah very different days indeed especially in f1 and was it was it your time in f1 that led you to chat with the other great minds that you worked with old, old Penske? is is that how you found your way into in, into the the other side of, of what you ended up doing yeah well there was a couple of things going on um at brabham's i wanted i was running reutemann's car uh, mm. And I really wanted to be the next step, which would be a chief mechanic, and which your you know, overall uh, mechanic responsibility. And so I was angling for that. And um, you know, it would it wasn't necessarily available at that time. I thought it was necessary. Obviously, you do. You think I oh, I can do that. Oh, I could do that. Yeah. Um, so I was I was a little restless about I need to get to the next step. I just don't want to be a lead mechanic for the rest of my life. And of course, at that age, you think you know it all. Um, and uh, at the same time, I was angling for more money. And Bernie <laughs> was holding out. And, uh, <laughs> and, and when he told Gordon... And we all went to lunch. This was like the final lunch. And Bernie had it set up where the wives are all on that table. And Gordon, Herbie, me, and, and Bernie were sitting at the other table. And Bernie, of course, had this all figured out. He'd bring up the subject of me and what I wanted. And, and when, he, when he said to Gordon and Herbie how much I was asking for, you could see they're a bit of a, oh, really? <laughs> you know, uh, and I never asked them, did you, did you have that reaction? Because 
I wasn't worth it or because you weren't getting paid that much. I never quite figured it out. But <laughs> anyway, needless to say, I didn't get my rise. But about the same time, and I wasn't looking necessarily to leave, but I thought if that's what I need to do, I'll need to do. So I, um, I was talking with um, one of the Lotus mechanics, eventually got to Chapman, and I was uh, destined to go for an interview um, with Chapman. So I went to Norfolk, which <clears throat> when I look back, I think I, I thought I was going to like the moon or something. <laughs> I mean, a lovely part of the countryside, but man, driving from where I was all the way up there, that was really a chore. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, my wife, because I was married by then, would probably not be a fan of this. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I went for the interview and I met with Chapman in his in his big, big building. Mm. And uh, I got the job, but I in the end um, decided not to. So around the same time, a driver who was it was like a works team hexagon had John uh, Watson, and he was like our, you know, he got the special treatment at Brabham's, and um, um, we liked him a lot. So I got to know John really well, and John was looking for a full-time ride and got one with Penske, and Penske mm -hmm. Formula One was uh, was really in sad shape. Uh, it, it had... Uh, lost its driver, Mark Donahue, at Austria. Mm. And it had hired uh, John to be the driver. And it had, um, you know, an old, uh, an old car they were testing with. And they were building their own car, their own Formula One car. So uh, John had mentioned to Penske uh, that, you know, I might be gettable to come in because they didn't have... At that time, they didn't have a European mechanics. Um, they they had American mechanics, and not that they were stupid by any means. It's just they weren't used to all the little things you mm. do, and that you know it's a different culture here for them. Um, so he was looking to get somebody from other teams to you know put his effort together and get him on track. So anyway, long story short, at the last race of the year, I think it was Watkins Glen, um, I scuttled off to a small motorhome somewhere out in the infield and met the great Roger Penske. And him and I sat for a little while and uh, he made me an offer um, and I got my position that I was looking for. And I got more money. It meant going from London to down to Dorset. Uh, because, you know, in those days, everybody, like they do sort of now, you built your own car. So mm -hmm. I went to a team from, from Brabham, which was getting bigger, but it still wasn't huge. It might be 25 people now <laughs> or back then. I went to Penske's, which was back down to about 15 and uh well 15 and a half if you include the cat but the, <laughs> so i went there but it was uh you know it, we built uh the first formula one car that you know um, won a race for roger and we went back to austria a year later 
after Donahue's death and we won the race with John Watson. And, um, you know, all that was good. But the sponsorship Penske had was running out first national city travelers checks. They were running out of travelers checks. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Penske didn't have the, um, the, the sponsorship. But I think, I've never asked him this, but my impression was when he saw what we could do in pool mm. with the small resources, building a car that had his name on it, I think that really uh, intrigued him. And, and he was currently racing in Indianapolis with uh, McLarens. So he'd buy McLaren cars. He was a customer for them. Mm. So we were going to start building our... So he decided to stop Formula One, don't have the money, keep the guys employed, and let's start building Indy cars. And, of course, we didn't know anything about Indy cars other than they were like trucks to us. I mean, they were <laughs> big, heavy. And uh, so we started trying to learn what it was all about building Indy cars. So I stayed on... Um, you know, just to, to manage that whole thing. And I flew back and forward to America. We'd make stuff, we'd go over there and the Americans would cut it up and do it differently. And I'd take all the notes and go back and we'd try to make it the way they needed it. And, you know, gradually we got better and we obviously started building a competitive IndyCar and did in the end, not, not didn't take us that long. Was it quite the culture shift? I can imagine it was pretty pretty tough, kind of, to go from an F one car, and and an F one being predominantly an F one kind of focused team, because even yeah. back then, you know, it was very very about the di you know very different. It was it, like yeah. I say, trucks, you know, racing racing cars to trucks, which is obviously yeah. fine because trucks and buses are pretty closely related. But if it was was it was it really quite tough? Um, I wouldn't describe it. Well, it was tough in one sense, but more breaking the barrier for them to accept these European ideas. Um, as it is today, uh, Formula One does things and a lot of the other series follow. They may not make it exactly or do it exactly the way Formula One, because Formula One's unique to Formula One, as it was back then. But um, the reason the American cars were big and heavy was they um, hit the wall, uh, concrete wall at, you know, a couple of hundred miles an hour, and uh, they just built them stronger. But it didn't make them necessarily safer. But near was Formula One at that time. But a lighter car um, and less pieces less uh, just making it more practical and obviously focusing as we did in formula one we were getting into the pit stop era when i left formula one um so looking at because uh, at indianapolis in those days maybe still now you could do about seven or eight pit stops in the race and it went on for three and a half hours or some bloody thing <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on and every little bit of stuff meant something in terms of your ability to win. So looking at everything was, uh, but, you know, getting people to change ideas was hard. So we did the same thing. We brought over European mechanics 
and integrated them. Not all of them, but we integrated a number of them. And a lot of them still live in America, in America to this day. And um, so that's sort of how it came about. But, you know, in the end, um, you know, Penske went on and built lots and lots of cars and lots of um, success came. And um, he's tackled other formulas and he has the basic Penske way, which um, hmm. is infectious. And uh, it, it is about performance, totally. Very much. You had a fantastic uh, success at Penske once it moved into the Indy cars. Uh, what was it? Four uh, series championships as well as four Indy 500s. Now, even to a layman of Indy cars, you've heard of the Indy 500. That, that's absolutely amazing uh, achievements. Uh, and uh, you made it to the, the role of vice president in racing. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to sound shocked there. That's, I apologize there. <laughs> Gee, I never thought about it that way. Just imagine if I'd stayed at the SMT. Ooh. That's it, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, one thing about Penske is, yeah, there's a, there's certain people who do more, have more if, effect on the outcome, but it is a team. And you're always, as we always say, uh, as strong as your weakest link. Hmm. And so when you look at racing, it might be, you know, cups and success and technology and cars. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about the people, right? And it's the smart people or the best people or the most competitive people. Or, uh, yeah, you need money, but the good people find the money. So it's all about people one way or the other. And Penske, we had a good run and they've gone on to even more mm. success than I left. So um, it, it's one of those organizations that's really um, benefited from a true leader. Um, he doesn't say a lot of words unless it's necessary. He doesn't have armies of management. Uh, he's not a profiler. Is totally about results. And he understands the human error. You know, he knows that you're not always going to get it right. But when things don't work, and we had quite a few years where we didn't have the best car and we were in deep doo-doo, uh, or we'd had major issues, um, he, it was, for him, it wasn't about, you know, who he, are you going to fire today or who are you going to ball out in the pit lane? That's not his style. For him, he's already thinking about what are we going to do to fix it or where do we go from here? Um, so he's, he's a true leader. And a, a lot of things he, a lot of things people do work for him isn't because he tells them to do that. They, they see him and they model themselves on him. They see how he professionally acts and uh yes it's expected and if you you know he there used to be the story around when he bought hertz truck leasing because uh, he's not just a racing guy he's a proper businessman who's made an awful lot of money a billionaire now i imagine several times over but when he first bought uh hertz truck leasing uh he went he made a point of going around to every dealer uh, that he had across America. So 
when he was traveling, he'd be stopping off and stopping off. And a lot of times he didn't announce himself, but when he did, he would have meetings with the employees or he'd say, we'll meet tomorrow at eight o'clock or whatever. And um, if people didn't turn up at time, occasionally just to get the message, he'd lock the door so he couldn't get in. So you knew you'd missed the meeting. So don't ever be late because next time you, he, he might not find the door, let alone the lock. Or he'd go through a dealership late at night with the, the manager walking through it. And he'd say to the manager, get, get this stuff out of here. You know, the guy might have some ornament or pictures all over the place or stuff that wasn't relevant to the business. It's to get this guy to clear this stuff up, you know, and put this stuff away every night, you know, and that's all you need to say. Let's do that. Just mm. make it that way. We're, we're a business. And, uh, you know, people soon get the message when you go there. You, you hear all the stories about what he is and what he isn't. And you, you fall into line because you can be pretty certain of one thing that you, you will be replaced if uh, you don't fit the mold. And, and you, you talk about bringing, um, you know, le true leadership and obviously being around as you as you were learning your craft, I guess. How, how did you find being a, a, a team manager and a team owner yourself? Because you've moved into that. Uh, and, and was that a shock to the system? Or did you find, well, actually, you know, you'd watch these these greats of the game, if you like, do what they were doing. You thought, actually, I'll take a little bit of him, a little bit of him, a little bit of what I learned here and there, and I'm, I'm going to go and do it myself. Well, um, before I answer that specifically, because there is a good answer for it, if I remember it, but seriously, um, and I've, again, repeating myself from many people that have asked this question in an informal way, is when I did the SMT, it was five years. And funny enough, everything I did from that point on after three years or so, I was beginning to get a handle of the new job that I had wanted, the challenge. And then there was a, a little while where I started looking, saying, where do I go from here? I mean, I'm saying this now like it was such a plan that I really thought out all the time. I'm talking about it now from looking back. So I wasn't that smart at the time, but it coincidentally... It seemed like every five years, I really wanted another challenge. And being the, uh, the chief mechanic, being the manager, being the general manager, the next step was I want to be a team owner. And I, you know, I'm SMT. I don't have any money. I'm not rich or anything. And, and so how do you do that? Well, there was ways, and luckily I found one way, but um, you, you've always got to be looking to the future as to what's next. Because when you get to around the age of 60, say, um, you better have done enough, and I know you're going to beep it out, enough shit in your life to earn uh, the money you need to live in the latter part of your life because once you get 60, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, you're on that curve going the other way and you better have enough money to get you through life and 
health issues, whatever. So it's really important in those important years to be always trying to push yourself. In a t and you'll get knocked down, you'll do the wrong one and you'll come back. In answer to your question, the two ways you learn, in my opinion, is you look at, I always used to look at people that I admired or people who I want to be one day. And I'd look at them and I'd like to mimic them because they seem to be, they seem to have figured it out. The other way you learn is you make mistakes because you don't know it all and you don't know what you don't know until you go and put your foot in it. But you know, if you're, if you're resilient enough, you'll bounce back and come back at it and you got to keep trying. You can't give up. Um, at least that's what happened to me. But it's not that easy. And again, um, I wasn't that smart at the time. It just on reflection, that's how it worked out. Sometimes it's better to work hard and be born lucky than rich, I found. it's. Uh... Well, yeah. Well, I always <laughs> say better be lucky than good. <laughs> it's even better, to be fair. To be fair. And if you can get both of them, you really got it, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope, I hope you're taking notes, Stu, because yeah, you've got to yeah. get, that, get that cash together, mate, because you're, you're quickly shooting towards that, pal. Oh, thank so you, you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, was, I was thinking about that, yeah. <laughs> remember, if I can do it, anybody can. There you go, Stu. There's hope for you, yeah. <laughs> but you've you've you found yourself obviously knee knee deep in 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 that american motorsport industry so it must have it must have suited you quite quite well and obviously to your lifestyle um but you found you found yourself at the, the the lofty heights kind of certainly like the early noughties and they've asked you to kind of cast your eye over quite a bit of certainly the indie world so how 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 was that? You've obviously accumulated quite a bit of experience by getting restless every those kind of four or five years. So which obviously suited you quite well to to keep an eye on the whole thing, really, towards towards the latter end. How was how was that for you? Well, you know, you you take it one day at a time, don't you? You you don't see what's always coming. You you deal with the immediate future. Yeah, you might have at the back of your mind a long-range goal of where you want to be. I didn't intend to come to American racing. I I, I would look down on it as a series because to me, the ultimate was Formula One. And um, I stayed on at, um, at Penske's when we started manufacturing cars for a few years. Uh, but I got restless again and... Uh, I traveled so much to the States to attend these races, to liaison between UK and the US, that uh, I started getting itchy feet. And so I mentioned to Roger when he was over at Christmas time for the annual party, uh, I mentioned to him that if there was something opened up, I might uh, like to come over to the States and go racing again. And uh, about six months later, um, I was out in America with our new car. Uh, we had it in the back of a truck that I'd picked up from the airport and uh, we had it hidden away. This was the brand new car for the next season. This was about 1980, the end of 1980. And um, 
I, uh, after the race, I was, was going to stay on and we were going to test the car. Um, so during the weekend, it was a Michigan uh, twin race, I remember. Um, I would be running one of the cars and I think because we ran three drivers I think at that time I was on doing uh, Mario's car and um, during the weekend uh, we'd go on the way to the track it's like about seven o'clock in the morning we'd go and stop off at this little um, hole in the wall cafe is the only place you get food on the way to the track. So it was one of those deep fry burgers places, a very small one. And uh, we would have breakfast there and then get to the track on time. So while we're in there, some the waiters going through the building shouting some name and somebody says, that's you, he's talking about you. I said, what would he say? Call him my name, telephone. Oh, okay. I mean, I couldn't imagine who the heck would know I'd be there. But anyway, I went into the kitchen and there's a dishwasher doing the thing and there's a telephone hanging on the wall and the, the guy's cooking and frying and everything. I'm in the kitchen and I pick up the phone and of course it's uh, our fearless leader, Mr. Penske. And uh, in true Roger fashion, he said, uh, yeah, I... Uh, McGee, he was the manager at the time. McGee, uh, he's uh, he's leaving, and uh, I want you to take over after the race. Uh, you, know, you, know, you okay? You want to do that? Yeah, sure, I can do that. I'd like to take a go at that. <laughs> so, sure enough, and of course, we, we won both races, and McGee left, Supposedly to retire, but in actual fact, he was going to one of Penske's arch competitors, Pat Patrick, and just didn't have the balls to tell Roger, um, which wasn't a problem. But anyway, after the race, I took over and that was it. So that's how I ended up in America, like some master plan to <laughs> live in America. I wanted to go racing and I wanted to try and get the next the next step. And then in the end, when I left Penske's, it was again to get the next step. I wanted, I thought, well, what, what else do I, I really want, you know? And I want to be a team owner. So I, 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 I laugh about it now, but I asked Roger, you know, was there anything, any way I could get a part of the team? And, uh, you know, he never gave me a straight answer, but he said he'd give me shares in Nazareth Speedway, which was a, a new track that he was building, regardless of what anybody said about it. He was going to build it, and it was uh, barely a mile oval in Pennsylvania, near Mario Andretti's home in mm. Nazareth. And it never worked. It was like a bull <laughs> ring, this racetrack, because the cars were just whizzing around. It'd make you seasick watching them. But anyway, <laughs> he, I got shares in Nazareth, which wasn't, which I had to pay for, obviously. They weren't free. But, um, you know, Roger was convinced that this, um, you know, was going to make a lot of money and I, it'd be the right thing to do. So his point was well-meaning. But it didn't, um, 
he didn't get me what I was looking for, which was, and to think back that I, he was going to give me part of Penske racing back then was ridiculous, but I asked. And so that sort of set me on a train to look, well, where do I go from here? And at the same time, racing, doing, you know, and that's the other thing about when you're looking at opportunity. If you look at opportunity, you can see where you want to be, but to get there, you probably have to go in at a lower level and try to get there. So you've got to go to somebody that really needs you. And when I went to Penske, they needed me. So that was that was what made it work. So when I'm running Penske Corporation, racing corporation, that is, where do you go from here? Well, you're not going to go to somebody who is at your level. You're going to have to go back to the boondocks. And so there was Al Holbert, Porsche. Mm -hmm. uh, driver, uh, had a Porsche dealership, um, hell of a nice guy, very religious guy. Uh, and he was managing for Porsche their IndyCar program because he wanted to do IndyCar. Not, not necessarily for himself, but he wanted to have an IndyCar team. And uh, so going, going to his team because he said he would gladly give me 10% of the team. Now, as we look back, 10% of racing team back then was about as about as worthless as about a thousand rupees are now. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's nothing you can take to the bank and get a loan because it's a liability, not uh, an asset, really. But Al offered me the 10%, and that was it. I was going to go. And, of course, it had Porsche there which I'd never worked for Porsche, but like everybody, you know, the 917 uh, years, mm -hmm. you know, you, you admire what they've done. And I really thought that'd be a neat idea. So eventually I went there and uh, we started on trying to turn that team around. And now, unfortunately, before I actually got the job, uh, started the job, Al was killed like, day and a half later in his airplane so uh, it was about a month or so then Porsche finally because they had two years of sponsorship to go and they needed to keep the team going for the sponsorship uh, agreed to to you know do a deal with me so I'd run the team for two years and then it'll be it mm -hmm. and that was that was another opportunity uh, because here was all this stuff because we ran two cars and all this equipment that was Porsches and Porsche didn't want it. Said sell it off and uh, send the engines and the cars back to Germany. Uh, we just don't want it. Try and sell it. And in the end, I said I'll buy it, but I didn't. I didn't have any money, but I, I figured I'll figure that out one day. <laughs> how to pay for it <laughs> and after about a year we did manage to pay them for it and they were very very good to me they gave me all the time to try and get on my feet and then I had to find the money to go run a car I didn't have a car because everything had gone mm. so that's when I met my first driver at the, the first race of the season which I wasn't racing at I was down there trying to beg for money somewhere and I bumped into this driver and he said he'd got a little bit of money from Bill Cosby 
would I run him at the Indy 500? And that's how it all started. Willie T. Ribs was our driver. And I got the team together. I said, look, if you go, if you work for me for nothing, if I get the sponsorship and you keep going after Indy, I'll pay you the salaries you would have earned. And they all, you know, it's like half a dozen guys uh, work for me for nothing. And we went to Indy, qualified, but only did two laps because our driver forgot to change the gear coming down <laughs> the front straight. So simple thing to forget, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's uh, you know, I make light of it, but it's... Um, it's an understandable mistake because just mm. watching the start um, is quite uh, quite exciting. So uh, given everything you have to think about, especially as a rookie yeah. uh, at the back of the pack, um, it's it would challenge it challenges every rookie. And um, you know we just happened to have a, an engine that didn't like to be over revved. It was a pushrod Buick. Mm, wow. Which had the oodles of power, but don't rev it because that bugger will bend the push rods, and it did. <laughs> well, they, but but whatever you were doing there, obviously it worked. It worked because you had some incredible drivers come through the doors, particularly obviously throughout the nineties. You know, some some really yeah. quite some incredible names. And how, how did you how did you talk to? I mean, obviously. You're pretty good at finding yourself in in situations and making the best of them. But how did you get these these guys through the through the doors in the end? Uh, well, they're no different than anybody else. Everybody wants an opportunity to do well, and drivers are no different in that matter. Uh, I mean, you have to convince them um, that you have the money, because the driver's going to realize if you don't have enough money, you're not going to give them a competitive car. And then they look at you, you know, well, what's the team made up? Who, who has he got? You know, has he got a good enough engineer? Because engineer's going to give the driver hopefully the best car that uh, he needs to win races. And so, you know, drivers weigh you up just as you do them. You look at them and say, well, you know, what's, you know, what's his capability, what's his strengths and weaknesses. And and obviously when you go, uh, when you're running your race team, you're somewhat, and you could do a chart um, which would show success and money raised. Whenever <laughs> I was raising money, I would have better cars, better people, and I'd win more races or do better championship. <laughs> So you've got to have it all. So now is another dimension to your life is you're, you've got to try and sell sponsors hmm. on uh, giving millions of dollars to motor racing. That's a tough sell, believe me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite driver from that era? Or I'm going to put you in hot water here by saying a name. No, no, not at all. Um, I mean, my sarcastic answer would be, I always loved the drivers that won. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for dodging the questions? Um, well, no, like a I, pro, I'm very impressed, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, but no, I enjoyed a lot of drivers. Um, you know, right back 
I loved working with Reutemann. You know, he was, mm-hmm. you become very attached with them. You become, you know, their best friend or, you know, just the boss or, uh, you know, you, you have relationships with these guys. Uh, some of them, you attach yourself to them more um, than others. But, um, you know, you just enjoy being able to race and they're the same, you know, they're happier when they're in a team environment where they can have a chance to win and they look at the people who are helping them do that and they like them. And you get a driver who is a real racer, who just keeps on trying for perfection and doesn't give up. Um, you admire them and you like them. But, you know, I, I have lots of drivers that I've been involved with in whether it be at Penske's or Brabham's or whatever, um, my own drivers that, that I really like. Um, I guess I would single out the one that would be my all-time favorite that I never managed to work with, and that'd be Jim Clark. Hmm. Uh. He was always, when I was growing up, that was my hero. Um, you know, the track is every every race and every move. And he just looked like the consummate driver, you know, he was, and it was obviously good, but you know, he, he seemed a genuine sort and um, I admire him. Um, So, yeah, but there's lots of them. They're all, they're all different, you know, different in their own way, but you, you, you work with them and you, you become close friends. Yeah, yeah, and Jim, yeah, Jim Clark. I mean, it, my, my personal favorite, my best driver of all time, hundred percent. Even, even it, a lot of people run him close, but it, it just, just, in, just incredible. And um, yes, well, you know, he didn't, he didn't last long enough. But the other no, driver no. who I would think back then um, here in America that I, it's not exactly like uh, exactly like Jim Clark, but in terms of the image when you look at them and what they represent uh, is Rick Mears. Mm. Uh, oh. Rick Mears is, uh, you know, just down and out racer. Um, you know, he, he, it was never, never one for the limelight, it never right. went to his head. Um, I mean, Roger, I think looks at him, he probably, maybe never said this, but he always looked, I always thought he looked at him like his son. Mm-hmm. And Rick is still hanging out with the team, adds a different dimension for drivers to help them. Um, he's a fantastic guy and just straight shooter. No bullshit. Which is help, it's helpful when you need direction, I find. Uh, so, so yeah, <laughs> if you can cut the crap out, it helps quite, it helps quite a bit. Um, Obviously, you found, on, you... I'll come back here. <laughs> the 20, 2022, that's what it's like now. <laughs> yeah, I'll it's come back good. to you, Dave. I'll come over to you in a minute. Okay. <laughs> that's my, uh, my, I'm here in my, what I call my man cave. I've been admiring it. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to look over your shoulder at points here, yeah. Oh. I'll, I'll give you a scan. Oh, fantastic. 
Christian Fittipaldi still racing on my wall. <laughs> Another one that went that's, that's a fantastic Team Australia picture there. Brilliant. No, not yet. <laughs> this one, if you can see it, if I can get it to you. Hang on. Uh, that one was the team that uh, first started out in Indianapolis with Willie T. Rips. So here I've got all kinds of this four Lotus cars. All these bits here are this. Is that an Alan under there? This, oh, yeah, there's an Alan. There's a seven. <laughs> there's a Europa, and this is the latest one I'm building. Is uh, renovating. Is the uh, the Cortina? Uh, this is a Porsche model. Oh wow! Formula One, uh, uh, IndyCar rather, and that's uh, the Robbie Gordon, Gilles de Fraren, IndyCar. Okay, rather puts our collection to shame. And we got <laughs> all this shit and more used to be in my uh, my man cave at my workshop in Indianapolis, and I didn't have the heart to get rid of it. No. Right. There's a wind tunnel model, and there's Jim Clark up there on the wall. It's got Goodyear, and uh, we got our engineer ready to go into the Cortina. That Cortina's a beauty. That's a that's a proper bit of kit. That is. Well, it will be hopefully. You <laughs> make a good bathtub at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I've got it all stripped down. I uh, painted underneath. And I'm working from the bottom up. So, anyway, wow. there's going to be a lot of very happy people to see that going back around. That's, yeah. Uh... Well, that's what we've got here in the man cave. So you come over here and just waste away. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's an invite we'd, we'd definitely take up. But it it leads it leads me quite nicely onto the the last question. Obviously, you've with with how. If you're still involved with it, you know, and kind of how you feel about about the racing world now, you know. Well, um, the only involvement I've had recently is I went to the Texas race because Ed Carpenter Racing uh, wanted me to come and help because uh, they were running a third car. Up until that, um, I had not been near racing since I left um, mm. retired IndyCar, probably. 17 or 18 i forget which year it was i thought you know when i was running the team that the good transition to retirement would be to join indycar and become competitions director so i did that for two and a half years and then i decided uh, for various reasons which i won't bore you but <laughs> i i uh, finished my contract there and and left and uh, so I hadn't been back. Anyway, I went to Texas and helped Ed for the weekend. Um, but I, um, when I looked at it, having been away for a few years, and given that racing has been all I thought about or all I did for 50-odd years or more, um, I, at first I never thought I could leave it. Mm -hmm. um, and when I went back, I was interested to have a look at it again, just to refresh my memory. Um, 
so the the takeaways were when I left IndyCar and I came home and decided, okay, I'm I've sold, I'm gonna sell the team, sell the building, uh, and I'm I'm going to get out of racing. Once I had sort of adjusted to that, I realized that um, at the ripe old age of 70, whatever it was, that um, I was happy to be off the treadmill. And mm -hmm. uh, the job had become a treadmill because that's, that's what racing is. It's a race and it's competitive at all angles. So whether it's finding sponsors or whether it's beating the next team, and it, it, it consumes you. I was lucky enough to decide, and I, I backing up, I would never quite know the answer to the question is, how do you stop this? Because eventually you get too old, you can't do it anyway. So I, I knew the end was coming, but I couldn't figure out, well, what does the end mean? And uh, so I went to IndyCar and tried to think, well, that's it. But that had a different aspect of it uh, that I, it wasn't for me. So I got off completely, but much to my surprise, I adjusted to the new norm fairly quickly because the reality of it was that I got off maybe not too late, probably mm. just right, that I still have enough marbles to enjoy a little bit of whatever life I've got left. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, and I've got my man cave here, so I tinker around and keep myself working to some degree, yeah. but um, I didn't miss it. I didn't miss it. Now, when I saw it at Texas, uh, one of my favorite sayings was, and still is, it was the same old shit, just a different color. And I've been, <laughs> I'd been there, done that, right? I'd, I'd had 50 odd years of standard racetracks and headphones and talking, talk, 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 race, race, Crash repair, crash repair. So uh, I've enjoyed all of that, and I'm. I would do it all again if I could. I wouldn't. I wouldn't change it. I'd probably do it better. I would like to think. But then, if I can't take what I know now back to then, then I'd do the same old shit probably. Because <laughs> uh, it's what we do as humans. Yeah. Um, but I don't miss it. Um, it's a slightly different game. Um, it's it's turned to spec for me. I don't like mm -hmm. spec racing. Um, you know, the Indy car that's running around right now, you know, it's a dreadful car to me. It might look kind of whizzy in a way, but it's mm. 10 years old. Yeah. And uh, there's it's time for a new one, but money is a big problem for everybody who, when you go down that road. Um, it's trying to do hybrid because it's trying to stay current for just a little while. But I look at hybrid and I say, well, how many manufacturers, car manufacturers are there that want to build hybrid cars? They don't. They got all batteries. So the hybrid experiment maybe give you a few more years of longevity. But, you know, you're going to do it again because you're going to have to solve this problem with, you know, electrification of automobiles. But that's maybe further down the road, not my problem now. 
but uh, <laughs> looking at the spec racing, I understand why it has to be that way. Mm. But I, uh, it's. I'm glad I was around when it wasn't that way. Yeah, I can. I can understand why you why you feel that way, and it's it's hard to disagree, to be honest. But um, it's a long season. The seasons get longer and longer as as well. They they add more and more dates. Um, do we do do you do you think you could call a winner for this year <laughs> if you if you dip your toe back in for long enough? Which in which formula? Uh, we'll go for because there's a Kiwi doing quite well in 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 the uh, in the IndyCar top track, isn't there? So how do we how do we think he's going to do? Well, I mean, he's shown. He's got the talent for sure. Um, I mean, he's certainly one of the few that can win um, and should be the runner to chase or to be right there. I, I think it's too early to pick who's really going to forge ahead. Um, it's probably you know, going to be out of a few teams. It's not going to be mm -hmm. too many drivers to choose from. Consistency is a really important part and adapting to the new world order, which is obviously a lot less testing. So a lot you have to hit the ground ready to go. Um, simulating is a big thing for them. Engine manufacturers have got to keep, you know, improving their units. So, um, you know, the, the field is very close and mm -hmm. that's a good thing. Um, but um, I, it's sort of smacks of made-for-TV racing for me. <laughs> yeah, it definitely yeah. feels that way. But it it's not. It, it's probably not, but that's me being sarcastic again. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's incredible, isn't it, really, as a, as a championship and as a form of racing as well. It's getting a lot more airtime back here in the UK as well, so we're... <laughs> Certainly, starting to enjoy it and report on it a wee a wee bit more, and it's 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 been a real a real pleasure, really, to 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 understand it from the inside. Yeah, Darren, thank you very much for your your time today. Really appreciate you taking time out of your your schedule and your um, Cortina tinkering uh, to to spend some time with us and tell us a, a lot more about your career and uh, the the inside track uh, on everything you've done. Um, well, absolutely salute you, and I'm way off to polish up my CV to send it into the SMT. <laughs> um, now to to even inspire me thank you very much you're barely qualified to ride a bus let alone do anything else for him mate <laughs> <laughs> yeah next time I go on one of those SMT buses or whatever they call them now I'm going to wear a crash helmet yeah. probably <laughs> don't sensible that don't tell him I said that I was only kidding <laughs> what's, what's that you're never allowed back i'm afraid that's, that's uh that's, thank uh, you <laughs> no Derek. honestly thank you so so much for, for for sharing for sharing that that was incredible incredible i'm sure we could do another three or four shows on it to be honest it's uh, yeah. a million stories and all the all the dirt it's it's not dishing the dirt that's the the tough bit <laughs> i well, might stop recording <laughs> yeah but you touch on that um but i always call it um well when we talk about racing, the real stories in racing are never really ever come to the surface sometimes. And uh, situations like this where you can talk about what happened when 
uh, it gives the audience the story behind the story. And there is always another version of it that never gets to the mm. prime time. So uh, I always enjoy telling the stories, but I'm not one to be sitting with a beer and just yap on about the good old days of racing. It has to be in response to a question about, you know, what happened then or what about that or what about that. So as you go down the road, if there's some issues come along that you think, well, that idiot in America might have a perspective, just give me a call. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely take you up on that. That that would be that would be great because it's. Uh... I really I took that from a point of view. Derek thinks he should get better interviewers next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to go there. You mentioned that. Well, you're not, the, you you're, what, you're not when, the first person. <laughs> when I come to Edinburgh, I um, I hope I'm going to be able to rely on a beer. Oh, very much so. From you yeah. too. Hundred uh, percent. Absolutely. 100%. And I, I know this is going to shock you, Scott. You're paying. Oh, no, you never said that. Oh, come on. Well, yeah, yeah. So this is a different deal suddenly. I'll, I'll take no. you to bar 24. Don't worry. I'm just checking to see if you're really true Scotsman. You pass in flying colours. That's, right. that's good to know. Derek, thank you ever so much. Genuinely, thank you so, so much for your, for your time. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. It. You Cheers, take Derek. care. Bye, and you, thank you so much.